You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Marginet Panos. And I'm Leo Stevens. And welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Leo. What have you got for us today? Hi, Mark. Um, Today I wanted to cover technology readiness levels. So technology readiness levels were developed by NASA in the 1970s to help keep track of the many systems and technologies they were developing. TRL is a scale from 1 to 9, representing the development of a new product or system. At TRL 1, you're at the earliest stage of fundamental research, a sketch on a whiteboard, and that's about it. By TRL 4, you've got a lab-scale prototype that shows the concept at work. At TRL 6 or 7, it should be a full-scale test system or pilot plant that's working in a very similar environment to how the final system would be intended to function. And finally, by TRL 9, the system is not only ready on its own, but it's also been integrated into all of the other systems it needs to work with for launch. And for NASA, they mean launch quite literally. (laughs) Importantly, since its initial development, the TRL system has been adopted by a lot of organisations beyond just NASA. And TRLs can crop up with research bodies, investors or institutions who are all looking for a quick metric for assessing how far along a technology is. Great. Um, first question straight off the bat, 1 to 9, why not 1 to 10, 0 to 10? <laughs> I don't know why they didn't pick 10 levels. I guess they hopefully took a first principles approach. They broke down the various steps and it just happened that there were nine of them. Uh, they weren't aiming for a particular number like you often see when some you know acronyms or systems are generated and they try to force it into a square peg through a round hole so that they can get the right number. Yeah, And, and when did the TRL scale... When did NASA come up with it? In the 70s was when they first implemented it. You know, it was, it was after the moon landing, but they were still in a stage of pretty robust development, had a lot of projects on the go, uh, and they were trying to keep track of all of these various systems. So what did they do before? Do you know? Or is there any information I'm, out there? I'm not sure what systems they had in place before. NASA clearly has had project management systems in place since well before 1970. Um, but yeah, the, the TRL system itself only originated then. And why do you think has this been so widely adopted? It's the simplicity, you know, as with any system like this, you do miss out on details. You, you cannot fully understand a project just by hearing it's a TRL four. But it gives a quick metric of what is quite a complex process. Say, you know, a grant is open to technologies of a certain stage. If you can say, you know, this grant is open for technologies at TRL 4 to 6, people can look at those guidelines and quickly appraise whether the technology fits into that. And just having that, that metric is very valuable. So would investors provide funds for a company to take them from level four, which is the prototype, to level six, which is a fully integrated system, or to go from one to two? Is that what what you can call investor rounds for? Yeah, well, I mean, one to two, or in fact, you know, probably one through to four would be fundamental research space. You probably wouldn't get investors at that level unless it's a very simple product. And then, you know, TRL four through to nine might be a space that investors would play in, you know, increasingly big and sophisticated investors. So at four and five, you're looking at an angel or a seed kind of friends and family around. At, you know, six or seven, you're probably looking at venture capital. And, and by nine, you might be able to do an IPO. 
an IPO is initial public offering? Initial public offering. And, and actually, that would probably come a bit after nine because usually you've not only developed your product, but you've been selling it and building revenue for quite some time before you get to an IPO. So who assesses that a company is at a particular TRL? Is that the company itself or are there independent bodies that can say... No, it's a purely self-appraisal process, the TRL system. There, there isn't a vetting governing body to determine it. But you look at the, the criteria for the TRL levels and you set your you, know, you, you tell people where your technology is at based on how high-performing it is. So would investors do due diligence, you think, if they Always. If something might look a bit fishy and they think well, you're not a TRL 6, you're more a TRL 3? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Any investor will do due diligence regardless of what TRL level the founders are claiming their technology to be at. And it will become obvious pretty quickly if they're way off the mark. You know, there's certainly gray area. You could argue between a four and a five or between a five and a six. Mm. But, you know, a nine is not a two. And that's pretty clear. Okay. Thank you. Let me talk to you about international student revenue. So international students, or sometimes called overseas students, are defined as people who are generally not Australians, obviously, and they're studying in Australia on a student visa. However, there are a couple of exceptions. So non-Australian citizens, such as New Zealanders, permanent residents, and permanent humanitarian visa holders are also not considered international students for the purposes of obtaining subsidized places at a university. According to the 2018 figures of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, international student education is worth more than $30 billion to the Australian economy on an annual basis. Over the last 10 years, this industry has actually grown and the number of foreign students enrolled in higher education in Australia doubled from about 200,000 10 years ago to 400,000 in 2018. So these students are a very important source of income for Australian universities. And in some cases, the revenue generated by international students can be as much as 25% of the total income of a university. On average, these foreign students pay about $30,000 per year, about double of what a university will receive from a domestic student. Now, the COVID-19 situation has changed all of this. International student numbers have crashed. This has led to large budget shortfalls. And most universities in Australia are now cutting costs of upwards of $100 million per year to compensate for the loss in revenue. And these are, very briefly, the key aspects of international student revenue. Yeah, it's certainly been an interesting time for international students in this COVID era. So you said um, there were 400,000 international students in 2018. Do you have an idea of what percentage of the student body that is? That is a good question. In, in some universities, it's 25%. If I were to take a conservative estimate, I would say 20 to 30% of the overall student body in higher education. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, regardless of the level of fees they pay, losing that proportion of your student body is very impactful to any university. Well, even if you replace your students with domestic students, you're not going to get the same revenue. Yeah, and I did want to query that a bit more. Obviously, the Australian government, it provides funding to support 
local students at universities, you know, the HECS system basically is subsidising. Why is it that the subsidised students provide less money to the university than the non-subsidised students? I don't know why that is, other than from a perspective that if you're a non-Australian, we can charge you a premium for your education, which is true all around the world. Mostly when you go to a university, if you're an international student, you end up paying usually double or even more than what a domestic student would pay. So there are, there are constraints then on what the university is allowed to charge domestic students? Yes, they are set by the government. And I believe in terms of international students, I think you can charge whatever you like or at least to make you competitive in the landscape. So you can't charge what you like. You have to see what your competitors are doing. And universities will spend enormous amount of time and resources in analyzing their competitor landscape so that they can be competitively priced for international students. But international students on the whole are willing to accept a higher price point than local students seemingly are. Well, local students maybe would accept more, but it's just that the prices are arbitrarily kept low by the government. I think as an international student, because I was once an international student, you accept that you're going to pay more for your education than if you stay in your home country. But you obviously want to get something else in return for that, being an international experience or going to a different university in a different country. So there can be many benefits that come out of it. Of course, in Australia, student visas come with working rights after you complete your study. So that's an incredible advantage for a lot of people that want to come to Australia. They can do a degree, get an education, and as an added benefit, they then receive working rights to stay in Australia to work. All right. Well, that's about the time that we have for today's episode. Thank you, Mark, for that overview. No worries. Thanks, Leo. See you next week. See you next week.